All right, let's uh, get started this morning. We'll look at our quiz here. Romans was the first letter Paul wrote, true or false? False. False. I don't think anybody says that. Clearly, most people say Galatians. Some argue first or second Thessalonians. Romans is later. Um, two, at the Jerusalem Council, Peter appears to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. False. 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 It looks like James. James is the person. We didn't look at that in detail, but he gets up and sort of summarizes the council. Peter does speak, but more as a missionary and so forth. And even later in the book of Acts, Acts 21, James is still there sort of as the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Timothy was from the city of Antioch. Antioch. Either one. Take your pick. I think he was from the city. No, he wasn't. He was from Lystra. Lystra. There's Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Derby, Lystra. You know, there's Lystra. Lystra and Derby. So Lystra is where he's from. Uh, there was no synagogue in Philippi. True, as far as we know, because Paul goes out by the river, because there's no building to apparently go to. And he meets uh, Lydia there. Thessalonica was the capital of the province of Macedonia. Well, we've got different cities in Macedonia. We have Philippi is in Macedonia. We have Apollonius, Apollonia. Uh, we've got Thessalonica. We've got Berea. Yes, Thessalonica was the capital of, uh, of Ma- the province of Macedonia. Paul wrote Galatians shortly after the Jerusalem Council. False. I argued before because if he had written it after, he probably would have referred to the fact that the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council, the church decided Gentiles don't have to keep the law and be circumcised. And since he doesn't refer to it, it's more likely he wrote it before. But we can't be absolutely positive about that. We're looking at the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, We started looking at that last time. We saw that Paul left his home church in Antioch, and he goes through the area of Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then he goes on back to Galatia. Now, this is where he had... Uh, been on his first missionary journey, Acts chapters 13 and 14. He's now revisiting that area. Um, and that's where he picks up uh, Timothy there in Lystra and adds him to his team. So now it's Paul and Silas and Timothy who are members of this team. He goes down to Troas. And you remember there at Troas, he gets the Macedonian call that vision of the night and he says come over and help us and it says uh, Luke says we determine so Luke apparently joins the, the team there the four of them now and they traveled over to, to Philippi Acts chapter 16 uh, after Philippi they leave pass through a couple of cities, Amphibolus and Apollonia, and they come to Thessalonica, 
Acts 17.1. They have to leave there because of opposition from the Jews. They go to Berea, and they have to leave there. That's where we left off last time. It says that uh, Acts chapter 17 and verse 15, uh, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So here we are. Uh, Paul is now at Athens, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. We see the beginning of the ministry here in Acts chapter 17, 16 through 21. Paul is here at Athens. Here is uh, what's called the Acropolis, and there is the Parthenon, the famous Parthenon, on the Acropolis there. Paul, of course, would have seen that. Athens is located in the province of Achaia, so we have crossed over now from... um, um, we've crossed over from Macedonia here. We've crossed over now, and we've come to the province of Achaia. And Corinth, uh, Athens, is in the province of Achaia. Uh, Achaia is a, as I say, it became a senatorial province in 44, AD 44, with Corinth as its capital. And Paul will shortly go to Corinth. So Athens uh, sort of reached the height of its glory in about the 5th century B.C., 500 years before Paul. It was still a home of, was a home of very famous philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno, and so forth. So Paul comes to Athens, and while he's waiting for them, that is Silas and Timothy, chapter 17, verse 16, he was discouraged because he saw all these idols. So he went to the synagogue, Verse 17, he reasons there in the synagogue, also in the marketplace, that is the forum, and so forth. And there he happens upon a group of philosophers, Epicurean Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He begins to debate with them. Uh, And uh, I mentioned here, these, these are the two principal philosophies of Paul's day, Epicureanism and Stoicism. Uh, Epicurus, who we think of as the founder of Epicureanism, believed the world and everything in it was made up of chance combination of tiny individual atoms. Gods may, gods may exist, but they're far off and have no interest in human affairs. We would kind of call that deistic from our own time period. So if God exists, if gods exist, they don't really, they're not really interested in everyday human affairs. Um, there were the Stoics. This was founded by Zeno. Um, He came to Athens and he began to teach at this porch, the Greek word for stoa, porch, and that's where the word stoic comes from, from the place where he taught. And uh, he's teaching centered on living harmoniously with nature, emphasized man's rational abilities, individual self-sufficiency. According to Zeno, the goal of life is virtue, Again, they had no personal immortality at all. When a person dies, the divine just goes back into the hole. So you don't really have any kind of personal future immortality. But they're listening to Paul, and they say, what is this babbler trying to say? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said, because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection... 
So apparently they interpret uh, Paul's teaching about Jesus and the resurrection as teaching about two gods. They recognize Jesus as a god, but they also recognize, they take the word resurrection to be a goddess. Uh, the reason they do that is because the Greeks did not believe in the bodily resurrection, a future bodily resurrection. They thought of the body as the prison house of the soul. <clears throat> and so one of the great things about dying is you get rid of the body and you have immortality. Some believe in a personal immortality, some don't. But you don't have a body. So remember when we went through 1 Corinthians, we saw that that was a problem uh, in chapter 15, the Corinthians were questioning the bodily resurrection. Why did they do that? Because Greeks did not couldn't imagine, couldn't imagine who would want a bodily resurrection. Why would you want to have your corpse again? Now, of course, we know that the body we're going to have is a glorified body. It's not going to be the same body. But they just couldn't imagine you'd want a body because they thought of body as the problem, source of our problems. We know that's not true. The source of our problems is our immaterial part, our sinful natures within our immaterial, not our physical bodies. Our bodies, unfortunately, are the, uh, suffer from the effects of sin, but our bodies inherently are not sinful. But in, in the Greek language, like some other languages, words, every word, has what's called a grammatical gender. Words in Greek are masculine, feminine, and neuter. And this grammatical gender doesn't really have necessarily, it doesn't always follow natural gender. So the word word, W-O-R-D, is masculine. We think of that as not masculine or feminine, but neuter. The word child, technon, is neuter. The Greeks didn't think, the Greeks didn't think children were neuter, <laughs> but that, that's just the grammatical gender. Here the word anastasis, resurrection, is feminine. So that's where they're going wrong. They hear, they hear he's talking about Jesus, that's a masculine noun. And anastasis, a feminine noun, they think, oh, anastasis is the consort of Jesus. All the gods always had a male and a female consort, Jupiter, Juno, Zeus, Hera, and so forth. So they're probably getting confused by that because they can't imagine he's actually talking about physical resurrection. He must be talking about some god, some god, some goddess or something. So they don't really understand what he's saying. So they decide... They will take him and examine him. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said, can we know what you're teaching, and so forth. I say this Areopagus was the chief judicial body of Athens and had jurisdiction as far as religion and education. So you just can't come to Athens and spout any kind of religion. We've got to see if this is acceptable within the norms. They take him to the Areopagus, and the King James, this is the Greek word Ares, which is the Latin word Mars. So, and the King James says they take him to Mars Hill. Well, here's the hill, uh, Athens, Mars Hill, or the Areopagus Hill, Areopagus. Now, we don't know whether, the, it says they're actually taking him to the council, the Areopagus. Uh, it's very clear in this text because it says in verse uh, 33, among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus. We're talking about the council here. And uh, so we're not sure whether they met on that hill or beside that hill or how they got that. You know, maybe that they were meeting somewhere in conjunction with there, but that's the, you're looking from the Acropolis down here on what's called 
Mars Hill or the Areopagus. So they bring him and they want to hear what is this guy spouting. And so uh, we see in verse uh, 22 through 31, Paul addresses the Areopagus there. Now, I'm not going to read all of this. i just kind of summarize here and say, Paul never quotes scripture in his speech of the Areopagus. However, it should be noted that before the confrontation at the Areopagus began, Paul had already begun preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So remember, this is, what we have here in Acts is always a condensation of all that Paul is saying. So Jesus has been, Paul has been preaching the gospel about Jesus, about the resurrection, and so forth. Now it comes before these particular philosophers. Now, he doesn't quote the Old Testament. These people had never heard of the Old Testament. He doesn't quote it and say, you know what Genesis says? They they don't know Genesis from anything. You know, they have have no idea here. So he doesn't exactly quote the Old Testament. He alludes to it. He has about 23 allusions in verses 24 through 31. But he does teach them or give them biblical truth. He declares uh, in the first couple of verses, 24 through 26, that God of Christianity is the creator. So, you know, you worship this unknown God. Let me tell you who the creator God is. It's the God of Christianity he talks about. And he says he's the Lord of the world and mankind and so forth. He goes on to say, God is not far away. He's accessible to people. We can know God through Jesus Christ. He talks about idolatry in verse 29, how stupid, ignorant that is. Uh, He says, beginning in verse 30, there's coming a day of judgment when God will judge people through this man, Jesus, that I've been preaching to you about. And uh, he goes on to illustrate uh, that they, or mention the fact, or say that they should repent. They should turn from their idolatry uh, because there's coming a day when God will judge this so-called ignorance of theirs. But uh, the response we see in verse 32 is um, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this. Again, the Greeks didn't accept this idea of the resurrection body. And so when they finally figured out, hey, this guy's serious. He is loony. You know, but he's, he's seriously living. He thinks he he thinks there is going to be a resurrection of the body. So some of them just sneered at him. Others say we'd like to hear him again. And so uh, some people became followers of Paul. Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, a Demarius, and a number of others. But Paul leaves and goes on. That doesn't say Paul establishes a church. I don't know whether he did. Some people think he did. Doesn't say that. We don't have any further reference, so we don't know exactly what happened here. Uh, Luke doesn't give us any more details. But we see that Paul leaves Athens, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, and he goes on to the capital of Achaia, the city of Corinth. Um, he, met, he meets there a uh, Priscilla and Aquila. I say it's one of the oldest Greek cities destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C. So the Romans, you know, they start conquering the world 
um, about the third century. They have they conquer the Carthaginians, North Africa. They start moving in the second century BC towards Greece. They conquer Greece in the second century. Eventually, they get to the Holy Land in the first century BC, and they take that too. Install Herod the Great as their puppet kind of ruler there. But in the second century BC, in 146 BC, Corinth. Uh, was the, the leading city fighting the Romans. And so the Romans said, we're going to make an example of you people. They just destroyed the city completely uh, for what they had rebelled, because they wouldn't submit. hundred years later, Julius Caesar rebuilds the city as a Roman colony. 27 B.C., Augustus made it the capital of the senatorial province of Achaia. So remember, these senatorial provinces were generally more, uh, un, they were more uh, tame and stable they would have a former senator usually who was called the proconsul. We'll see him in a moment go out and rule that place. You didn't usually have any uh, legion station there. So Paul goes to Corinth. Corinth is a large metropolitan area here. There are suburbs like Sincretia, Lechium, Isthmia. They had games there like the Olympic Games every two years. Probably had games when Paul was there. 50 to 52. Um, one, one time the Emperor Nero went to those games <clears throat> later on. This is when he became Emperor. And he went to those games <clears throat> and he won every gold medal. So you think of these guys who won these seven or eight gold medals, that's not the Nero one ever won. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't actually even participate in all the races, but they said if he would have run, he would have won. So he won all the gold medals at that Olympic. That's never been done since. So as we saw here, uh, we have a couple of bodies of water here. We've got the Corinthian Gulf, the Aegean. So here we are here. Corinthian Gulf and the Aegean here. A couple of ports there. You can see this isthmus, this piece of land, and the two ports here. Here is the uh, kind of a diagram of the area. So this is ancient Corinth. Here is Acro-Corinth, the, where we'll see the temple of Aphrodite was at once. Roman roads leading north and so forth. Here is uh, what the excavations look like there. Here's a remnant of a road to Lechium here. And... Uh, here is, we're looking back up at the at Acro-Corinth here and the Temple of Apollo here. So uh, the chief deity was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. She had a temple up here on the Acro-Corinth. Uh, writers say that there was sacred prostitution there. It seems very strange to us, but this is what happened in the ancient world. Part of worshiping the gods was this kind of thing. So Paul goes there, he meets Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, they're not listed, as I say, among Paul's converts, so they may have been converted in Rome. It just says Paul stayed with them. He was a tent maker or a leather worker. And every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade people. Well, he has an 18-month ministry there. Verse 11 mentions this, where he, an angel appears to him. Uh, the Lord speaks to him, I mean, I should say, at night and says, uh, 
Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching the word of God. So Paul has an 18-month ministry there. He probably came in the fall of A.D. 50 and uh, probably left in the spring of A.D. 52. Now, we know this date with pretty reasonable certainty because we'll meet Gallio in a moment and we know exactly when he was in Corinth. Exactly. So we, we've got the dates here of Paul pretty close here. So Paul has this ministry. He's uh, preaching. Uh, with Timothy and Silas come with some funds from Macedonia, Philippi. He devotes himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to Jews and Greeks. The, the Jews oppose him. And he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. Verse 6. He leaves, he goes next door to the house of uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leaders of the entire household, believed. Many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. And he gets this vision from the Lord and says, don't worry, no one's going to harm you. He's there for a year and a half. And then we have the Gallio episode. While Gallio was uh, proconsul of Achaia, uh, I mentioned he became proconsul of Achaia in 1st of July, AD 51. Now here's a man we know very well from Roman history. He was a very, from a very famous family, well-known and so forth, and we came in AD 51. Now, Paul had been there some time, so we think probably he came maybe in the fall of AD 50. He's there sometime after Gallio, after this incident, so maybe the spring of AD 52, he leaves. So uh, they brought Paul, it says, they brought Paul before to the place of judgment. Apparently this place here, this is is where that name Bema comes in, the Greek word, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. This apparently is the structure there. If you can see right there, that's me, uh, and Pansy's down here. I'm giving her some instructions for God. <laughs> it's not me. It's, it's not me. Did you take the instructions? Oh, yes. <laughs> Maybe it was your concert. It must. She probably didn't want me to hear it. <laughs> That's not funny. You know? <laughs> So uh, there would have been columns here, and uh, you know some sort of roof over this at the time, and so forth. And suppose the proconsul would come there and make judgments and so on like that. So they bring him before him for the proconsul, and they say he is uh, persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said, "If you Jews were making a complaint about some serious misdemeanor or crime." It'd be reasonable for you to listen to me. But since it's questions about your words and names, your religion, I'm not going to be judged. So they drove them off. So as I say here, they charge him with speaking, having an illegal religion, something against Judaism. And Gallia says, well, that's not my prerogative. I'm not uh, I'm not here to judge these kind of religious, interreligious matters among Jews and so forth. Jews had legal status in the Roman Empire. And uh, so... Gallio says, settle that dispute among yourselves. So he refused to to, uh, hear the case. He threw the case out. Um, Many people think Luke records this because 
this is sort of uh, giving, this is a famous Roman that everybody knew, sort of giving tacit recognition of Christianity. Now, Christianity eventually will be persecuted throughout the Roman Empire, beginning with Nero in some few years. In about 15 years, he'll start persecuting the Christians. The Christians are persecuted throughout the Roman Empire eventually because they don't worship the gods. They refuse to worship the gods. And everybody was supposed to worship the gods. And that, and so there was, uh, remember, there's always state, uh, church and state go together, or religion and state go together throughout the ancient world. So, so the problem is, if you don't worship the god, bad things will happen to us. So when bad things happen in the first century, the second century, the third century, the the Romans blamed the Christians. They said if the Christians weren't were worshiping the gods, these things wouldn't have happened. So there's a fire in in Rome in Nero's time. He blames the Christians. That's because of those Christians they don't worship the gods and so forth. So, uh, but this is helpful because. Here's a very famous Roman who has said, you know, Christianity, as far as I can see, is just some form of Judaism. I'm not going to call it, I'm not going to say it's illegal. I'm not going to, you know, say, you, you know. So that's that's kind of a positive thing, probably why Luke records it here. So uh, they did beat this fellow Sosthenes and, uh, and the synagogue leader, and Gallio didn't have any particular concern. Um... Now, it's during this 18-month ministry uh, that Paul writes First and Second Corinthians, I mean First and Second Thessalonians. Remember, we just saw the second missionary journey here. Paul goes to Philippi, then he goes to Thessalonica, and now he's come to Athens and Corinth. Well, he's going to be writing First um, and Second Thessalonians. So we want to just briefly talk about those two books just for a few minutes here. We know what we're talking about here with Thessalonica because we've seen Paul travel there in Acts 17. We just discussed that last week. This was a large seaport at the northeast end of the Thermaic Gulf here. Uh, and uh, northernmost part of the Thermaic Gulf. Named for the wife of the Macedonian general Cassander, who was also the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Largest and most important city in Macedonia, the capital of the province. The majority of the people were Greeks with a sprinkling of Romans, Orientals. There was a large Jewish population. We saw that because Paul went into the synagogue. Um, we talk about the date and place of writing. Both letters were written from Corinth at the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Second Thessalonians was probably written about six months after the first letter, since Paul arrived, probably arrived in Corinth in the fall of AD 50. A date around 51 for both letters seems to be likely. So this is sort of where we're at. We think First and Second Thessalonians are the second and third letters, probably written about AD 51. Let's talk about the occasion and purpose here of these letters. First Thessalonians was written in response to the report that Paul received from Timothy. Um, he mentions that in First Thessalonians chapter three, verse six. His purpose was to thank God for the church, to answer false insinuations against himself and his associates, and to encourage proper Christian conduct. Second Thessalonians comes maybe about six months later. He gets further word about the church conditions. 
about some persecution. He gets it through some unknown channel we'll talk about. Apparently, uh, the persecution had grown worse, and they were convinced by a pseudo-Paulin letter or other false misrepresentations that the end time was already present. We're already in the tribulation period. This led uh, some to give up their work responsibilities even more than at the time of 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote to encourage them in the midst of their persecutions, to clarify events concerning the day of the Lord, and to encourage proper Christian conduct. Let me just briefly summarize here then 1 Thessalonians. We have a uh, we have a salutation in uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Um the, Paul's normal salutation, and then we have uh, a, a discussion that we might call call here Paul's relationships relationship with the Thessalonians. He starts off as he does in, in most of his letters, except for that letter to Galatians, with a thanksgiving in verses two through ten. We thank God for all of you. So he has this common thanksgiving. He thanks God for certain virtues. He thanks God because they've been chosen by God for salvation. He thanks God for the example of their godly Christian behavior. And then in chapter 2, he starts talking about his relationship with them. First, when he was with them. That's the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And what he's doing here, he's trying to defend his ministry while he was there among them. He's arguing that his ministry there, he thinks, is a, was a very effective ministry. In spite of opposition, he says, my motives were pure. People are questioning Paul's motives. This happened in many of his epistles. You know, why did you come here? What are you trying to get out of us? You know, this was common in the ancient world. Speakers came into town, into cities, and they raised money, they collected funds, they lived off the people, you know. It was a, it's happens in our day, and it happened in Paul's day. So Paul is trying to defend him, him and his associates. They he's talking about we have we 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 displayed the highest character, verse five. You know we never use flattery two five. No we put on a mask to cover up greed. We weren't greedy. So we weren't looking for praise from people or anything like that. He says, uh, um, he goes on to argue some of these points. Then in chapter 2, verse 17, he talks about what's happened since he was away. Now, the reason he has to talk about this is because he hasn't been, in, he wasn't in Thessalonica very long. Remember, Acts talked about three Sabbaths, and we, I said maybe it was longer, maybe a few months. Okay, this the apostle comes into town, does all this stuff, he's gone. Where is this guy at, you know? What's happened to him? Why hasn't he come back? That's what he's talking about in chapter 2 in verses uh, 17 through all the way chapter 3. He's, he's talking about the fact that he says, I was forced to leave you. But brothers and sisters, verse 7, we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought. We wanted to come to you, but Satan blocked our way. So Paul says, listen, uh, I wanted to come. Uh, I just couldn't because of uh, 
providential Satan was working against us and so forth. So verse chapter 3, verse 2, we sent Timothy to you, who is our brother and co-worker, to strengthen and encourage you in the faith, chapter 3, verse 2. So Paul's trying to defend himself, what's happened to him uh, since he is gone. So he says, you know, my motives were pure while I was there. My motives are pure in the fact that I had to leave. I didn't have any choice. I couldn't get back. Chapter 4, he gives them some instructions in doctrine and life. He encourages them about Christian living. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. He uh, has some instructions in chapter 13 about concerning the dead in Christ. We're familiar with that passage in 4, 13 through 18 about the rapture, you remember? Some people had thought that, hey, some of us have died since you were here, and you talked about Christ coming back. What's going to happen to those who died? They, they won't be here. They won't be alive. They won't. What, what's going to happen? And Paul explains, no, don't worry, because they're with Jesus, and he'll bring them back with him, and they'll get their resurrected bodies even before we who are alive get their bodies. Then in chapter 5, he has kind of an exhortation to personal watchfulness um, related to the rapture, that is the day of the Lord. Um, he has some instructions concerning the assembly uh, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, and some other instructions, but I must hurry on here. Let's just mention a couple things about 2 Thessalonians. Paul writes this letter because... New, a few things have developed since that first letter. He starts with a salutation. He begins again with a thanksgiving, encouragement, and prayer. He This time he encourages them in their persecutions. They, that, that, those persecutions had become more severe. We boast about, verse 4, your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. He talks about their suffering and so forth. So they're being persecuted... He doesn't say by who. Is this the local authorities? Are these Jews who are persecuted? He doesn't actually say here, but they're facing persecution as Christians for being Christians. Uh, another issue that's come up is uh, the day of the Lord. That's chapter 2. He has to correct them, give them some corrections about what's called the day of the Lord. He said, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 1, and are being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or a letter. So somebody has said, hey, Paul says, and Paul says, no, I haven't said anything like that, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, the Antichrist, and so forth. So what's going on here is, if we look at the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, it begins at the end of the church age with the tribulation period, and it continues on through the kingdom, actually. And so they're going under, they're undergoing persecution. And Paul has talked about the tribulation and all that kind of stuff. And so this persecution is so severe, they think, hey, did we miss it? You know, has the rapture already taken place? Is the day, are we in the day of the Lord? The persecution of the day of the Lord? And Paul says, no. There are certain events that will take place. 
there there is this uh, tri- there is this tribulation he says that's uh, going to come uh, uh, I'm sorry uh, the rebellion occurs there's a an apostasy a turning away the man of lawlessness or the antichrist is going to come in the tribulation period he's actually going to set himself up in the temple of God and demand to be worshipped. So we think that means, it seems clear that the temple will have to be rebuilt in Jerusalem sometime, uh, probably during the tribulation period. So anyway, he says, no, that's not going to, that's not happening. You're not in the tribulation period. Uh, so, you know, don't be alarmed. Uh, don't be deceived by all of that. He uh, finally uh in chapter uh, uh, 2, verses 13, he has another thanksgiving for them and a prayer, 13 through 17. And then he finally, in chapter 3, has some exhortations concerning practical matters, especially about working, uh, you know, and separating from people who won't work, disobedient brothers uh, who won't do their work and so forth. He says... We have to uh, separate from them. He says, uh, verse 14, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. And then he has a conclusion. Let's hurry on. We want to come to the close of the second missionary journey. Paul... uh, Decides he's going to sail over to Ephesus. He's going to sail to Ephesus. He hasn't been to Ephesus. You remember on the second missionary journey when he was in Galatia, he wanted to go to Ephesus, but the Spirit said no. He wanted to go to Bithynia, the Spirit said no, so he goes down to Troas, gets the Macedonian call, and goes over to Philippi. So now he's going to go to Ephesus. This is Sincrea. This is the port here uh, that we can see, the eastern port that goes to out to the Aegean. And uh, so they sail over to Ephesus in Acts chapter 18, verse 19. He was accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. They arrive at Ephesus, uh, as I say here, uh, it was the capital of Asia, which became a Roman province in 84 B.C., the leading commercial center of Asia Minor, most noted for its worship of Artemis and her temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. She was a fertility goddess, and each year, one month would be devoted to ceremonies in honor of Artemis games and concerts and so forth. So this is ancient Ephesus here. So you can see this sort of forum uh, of the city with a theater there. Here's a uh, street in Ephesus. Did you go to Ephesus? Never been to Ephesus. Anybody been to Ephesus? You have? Did you walk down that street there? Did you? Okay. Uh I think I see you right over there. Yeah, right down. <laughs> this is supposedly what's left of this great temple, the Temple of Artemis. Um, 
It was uh, much larger than the uh, the Parthenon, and uh, one of the great things. But there's just some stones they put back up there for one of the columns. There's nothing, nothing really left there at Ephesus. Uh, so Paul arrives in Ephesus. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. He went to the synagogue, reasons with the Jews. They asked him to spend some time. He says, well, I'll come back, verse 21, if it's God's will. And he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. I say they remained in Ephesus. They were there in AD 55, hosting a church in their house when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, as we'll see. However, by 56, they were... When Paul wrote Romans, they were back in Rome. Remember, they had come from Rome, but they had been expelled by the Emperor Claudius. The Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. They had to leave. So they came to Corinth. They go over to Ephesus, but then eventually they go back to Rome. And uh, so Paul sets sail from Ephesus. He lands at Caesarea here. This is the port. Um... He goes up to Jerusalem to greet the church there. And then he returns back to Antioch in chapter 18, verse 22. That's the uh, close of the um, second missionary journey. That brings us then to the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it says, verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul left out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul takes the same route he did last time, and now he comes back to Galatia again just as he did on the second missionary journey, strengthening the churches there. Um, this is the longest of Paul's missionary journeys. He spends most of his time in Ephesus, as we'll see, about three years. But in the meantime, while Paul is doing all this, a Jew named Apollos comes to Ephesus, Acts 18 and uh, verse 24. He was a native of Alexandria. He was a learned man, knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, spoke with great fervor, taught about Jesus, we're told. But he only knew the baptism of John. Uh, this has caused quite a bit of difficulty over the years. Difficulty for me, keep trying to teach this for one thing. <laughs> Because it's difficult to know exactly what uh, Apollos knew. What is, what is Luke telling us that he knew? He knew about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Um, as I say here, it may mean that Apollos was familiar only with the teaching of John the Baptist regarding Jesus, which would include the fact that he was the Messiah possibly something about his earthly ministry, it would mean he didn't know anything of the finished work of Christ. That might be what is suggesting here. Um, it's difficult to know where this man got all this knowledge. Some people say 
maybe he was a disciple somehow of John the Baptist or one of the John the Baptist disciples and he got the message of John the Baptist who talked about the coming Messiah, pointed to Jesus as the Messiah and so forth, but of course was killed before Jesus finished his ministry. That might be what is happening here. But anyway, he meets Aquila and Priscilla and uh, they uh, show him the way of God more adequately. Um, I say, whatever the spiritual condition of Apollos, it was remedied by Priscilla and Aquila who explained him the way of God more adequately. The fact that he is not said to be baptized and the apparent contrast with the disciples of the next chapter suggests he was already regenerate. That's my thinking on that, but I'm not positive. But uh, here's a man who had enough of the truth to be regenerate, but he didn't he had, didn't have the full message down and so forth. That may be what Luke is indicating, because he does draw a contrast here when we get to uh, chapter 19. So that, that might be the case. So Apollos is at Ephesus, but then it says he wanted to go to Achaia, the Corinth. So the brothers and sisters encouraged him, wrote the disciples, and we went to Corinth. Now we know he's at Corinth because 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 3, Paul mentions Apollos uh, being at Corinth. So we know he came to Corinth. So he goes to Corinth and Paul completes his journey from Galatia and he takes the road and he goes to Ephesus. Um, Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road, comes to Ephesus. Now immediately he has a problem. He, he finds some disciples there, some people who appear to be Christians, or you know, disciples. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a spirit. Uh, I say here, they're called disciples. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're genuine Christians. Luke's practice is to portray the spiritual condition of his characters as their act, by their actions without always evaluating it. So I'm not sure. These men appeared to be disciples, but Paul has some doubts about their Christian status, apparently, and he begins to examine them a little more carefully here to see what is happening. And they say, Paul says, well, uh, what about the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. It says there that there is, a, we didn't know that there is a Holy Spirit. That expression might imply that they had no knowledge of the Holy Spirit at all. This might be so, but it might not be so, because John the Baptist had spoken of the Spirit, and these men appear to be adherents of his message, because they say, verse 3, what baptism did you receive? And they say, we got John's baptism. So we got John the Baptist here again. They got John's baptism. They have some incomplete message, but they haven't received the Spirit. And uh, so it may mean that they're just ignorant uh, when it says we haven't heard of the Spirit. It probably means they were ignorant not of the Spirit's experience, but of the Spirit's bestowal. Uh, we didn't know the Spirit has come. We didn't know, maybe know about Pentecost. Uh, that could be what's being uh, talked about. Anyway, I say here, uh, verse 3, Paul says, uh, John's, uh, verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe on the coming one, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. He placed their hands on them. 
The Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So they were clearly regenerate because they displayed these miraculous gifts. I say in, on the verses 3 through 7, these men may have been disciples of Apollos, although one wonders why he himself did not enlighten them after his own instruction from Aquila and Priscilla. As with Apollos, it's difficult to determine whether these men were already saved, their baptism and subsequent display of spiritual gifts would seem to imply they were not saved, I think. I think they didn't have the Spirit. Paul baptizes them. That suggests that they had some truth, but they didn't have enough truth to be regenerate, I think. So it's a difficult question to know exactly their status here. So Paul, uh, we see a summary of Paul's ministry in verses 8 through 12. He goes into the synagogue. He speaks for three months. But then the Jews oppose him. And so he leaves the synagogue, verse 9. He goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And for two years, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. <coughs> so Paul... Uh, it has a ministry there. He has a he has the uh, Ephesian Baptist Seminary. Uh, Ephesian Baptist Theological. No, it's just a, he has he has a lucky lectures there, and uh, it may be that that's where these churches got started. You know, when you have the Book of Revelation, you have all those churches of Asia Minor. Where did they come from? We know that Colossae was was established by a disciple of the Apostle Paul, Epaphras, who probably came to, you know, probably came to, who was at Ephesus, Ephesus, heard the Apostle Paul, he goes back to his home city and starts the, the Colossian church, maybe. And that may be where these other churches, some of the churches in Asia Minor, so Paul is centered there. He may have gone out to some of these places, we don't know, Luke doesn't say, and he has a ministry there. Uh, at the very end of this Ephesian thing, Paul encounters some Jews who were went about driving out evil spirits, trying to evoke the name of Jesus. And uh, they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So they thought this was some sort of magic formula. In the name of Jesus, you know how the people do on TV. You know? Like it's some magic formula, you know. It's not the name, it's the authority of the person who is doing it. And you just can't do some magic formula and shout Jesus and things will necessarily happen. But they thought so. They thought this is another incantation. We'll just take up Paul's incantation because he's doing miracles with his incantation. As we, I didn't read the section, but he's doing these miracles. So they uh, take this up upon themselves and you know they get into a lot of trouble here. Uh, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating they ran out of building naked and so forth. So uh, Paul has an effective ministry there. Many of the pagans give up their books, their uh, sorceries, verse 19 and so forth, their scrolls and so on. And then we see in verse 21 Paul's travel plans. Paul decided he's going to go on to Jerusalem. And he tells us his plans here. He says, uh, after all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. So he's going to go to Jerusalem, pass through Macedonia and Achaia, go back to Corinth, revisit these cities. After I have been there, then I must visit Rome also. So he's going to 
come back and then go to Rome. That's his travel plan. So Paul's making plans, and he gets to Rome, but it's not the way, you know, that he thinks he's going to get there. But he gets there eventually, but he's making plans, leaving it in the hands of the Lord, he said. So he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Now, what happens there, remember, the last thing here, is there's a riot at Ephesus. Verse 27 says that, uh, you know, Paul had been turning away a lot of people from the from these various cults, from the worship of Artemis. It says, verse 23, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So they made these souvenirs for Artemis, for people who came there. People uh, came to Ephesus to worship Artemis because Artemis was a fertility goddess. Fertility was a huge thing in the ancient world. You wanted fertility for your family. You wanted a lot of children. They could farm your land. They could do all that. You wanted fertility for your animals. And you were dependent upon the gods to get it. The gods could bless you or not. So people would come and uh, offer sacrifices and do things. And Ephesus was quite a center for this. And so these men, they're making these silver shrines and they're losing money because people aren't coming as much because the gospel has come in there. And so uh, they create this disturbance. You know how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray, verse 26, a large number of people here in Ephesus, practically the whole province of Asia. He says the gods made by hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. We couldn't have that. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, be robbed of her divine majesty. So they create this uh, uproar. And... Uh, they get, grab some Christians. Um, the city was in an uproar. They grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and they brought them to the theater here. <clears throat> and some Paul wanted to go in there, remember, but his friends said, no, don't go in there. Uh, you know, We don't know what will happen to you. They got into it. They were in confusion. They didn't know what was going on, the crowd says. They shouted for two hours, verse 34. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. Can you imagine that? <laughs> well, then the city clerk comes in and he says, Listen, this is an illegal assembly. You know, you shouldn't be doing this. You have brought these men here. They haven't robbed temples. They haven't blasphemed our goddess. If you have charges, bring them to the consul, bring them to the courts, and so forth. So he was able to dismiss the assembly and put an end to that. Um, now, while, while Paul is in Ephesus, we'll stop here, he writes 1 Corinthians, and that's why in your notes there we have 1 Corinthians listed there next. But we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us this day. Thank you for the preaching, the word we heard. Thank you for the instruction we received from the scriptures. <clears throat> Pray for our friends Edwina and Sandra <coughs> who are recovering. We pray you'll give them a, a quick recovery, recovery. They can be restored to the fellowship. 
of their friends here at CBC. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.